And let's turn on our Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together. We come now to chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles, and you just get their attention, they'll give you one. It'll be marked right to where we'll be studying this morning. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. God wants everyone to own a Bible and to know the Bible, and we do too. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he had come and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then one of them named Agabus stood up and he showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all of the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And then the disciples, each according to his own ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And when they did and sent it, this they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this, your word. We thank you for all that you have uh, packed into these verses and what they are intended to mean to our understanding the rest of the book of Acts, but also what they are intended to speak to us individually concerning our own walk with you and our own Christian service, our own desire to see the world changed for you. And we pray that you would give us a fresh capacity, Lord, to study your word this morning and to learn it, to hear your voice through it this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Acts covers a period of about 30 years. And because it does so within the comparatively short uh, space of 28 chapters that make up the book of Acts, it fully jumps from one major event to the next major event to the next major event. Virtually everything that is recorded is a major event, whether we recognize it uh, or not. Uh, the Holy Spirit recognizes it uh, to be true. And the passage that we come to this morning is no exception. These verses in chapter 11, they provide us with a very, very important foundation for understanding the rest of the book of Acts. 
because in these verses we have the record of how God chose to take and make this Gentile city of Antioch the center for missions and the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the early church as opposed to the city of Jerusalem. The entire focus of the Great Commission, the body of Christ, the reaching of the world with the gospel, now virtually fully moves away from the city of Jerusalem to this city by the name of Antioch. This is a major, major development in the book of Acts and a major development in the history of the church. This passage contains at least a half dozen subjects that each one of them are worthy of uh, developing an entire Sunday sermon uh, and teaching on it. But I want to resist that temptation to keep us moving through the book. I do want to keep moving through it, but supremely because all of these things that are listed, these several things all compressed together against one another, it produces kind of a compressed excitement. They're built off of one another. It's all happening all at the same time. These things are pushing up against one another. They're interacting with one another, and that's what's producing the entire scene. If we pull it out and we put it under the microscope, we're going to lose that energy, the energy of what was happening in Antioch here in those uh, early days. And so we'll look at it this morning with the idea of not looking at anything specifically with tremendous depth, but to, in order to simply glean some vital and I think uh, some very important personal ministry lessons as well. The context of all of this is given to us in verse 19. Allow me to read it to you again. Now, those who were scattered before the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. All of this takes us back to Acts chapter 7 and the death of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr uh, of the Christian church. And following his death and his stoning, a great persecution arose against all Christians who were in the city of Jerusalem. This persecution was led by a fanatical young Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who ultimately becomes known as the Apostle Paul. He is determined, if not to bring the extinction of Christianity in all the world, he's very determined to at least take and remove it completely from the city of Jerusalem. And because the persecution was so strong and so great, Christians fled for their lives in all directions. They were scattered out into uh, the fullness of the Roman Empire. Now, I think it must be very, very hard to be the devil. Not that I have any compassion on him. I want it to be as hard for him as possible. But to try and put out the church or to destroy the church at this point is like the equivalent of being at a large campfire, which I've had the privilege of being around a few times through my life, and then endeavoring to put it out by beating it with a large stick. 
You're never going to put a fire out that way. All you're going to do is to cause it to burn even more brightly and send sparks going in all directions. And that's all this persecution did, is it spread Christians, these great sparks for the gospel, in all directions into the Roman Empire. And in those days, to scatter a Christian was to also scatter the gospel. They took the gospel with them, and then they preached it wherever uh, they went. We remember from chapter 8 that this persecution drove Philip into Samaria, and he's driven out of Jerusalem into Samaria. He preaches the gospel there. The Samaritans uh, experience a revival that occurs and, uh, and under his preaching and his ministry. Well, it's here in chapter 11 we get the rest of the story. It wasn't just Philip. There were a bunch of them that went out and did the same kind of thing. And we're told that many others went to Phoenicia. That's modern-day Lebanon. They went to Cyprus. The same island is named Cyprus to this day. And then they went to uh, Antioch, where they preached the gospel to the Jews who were living there. Now, let's begin kind of our devotional overview of the passage by noticing this mention of the city of Antioch, to realize that here is the Holy Spirit out of all of the cities in the whole world. Number one, most of us would look and say, if you're... Who is going to move the center of Christianity and the center of missions and the fulfilling of the Great Commission from Jerusalem? It'd be like sacrilege. And yet he does that. And at this point in church history, Antioch becomes this great center for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. It becomes the center for the missionary effort of the early church. It was the work of the Holy Spirit, and it was a very, very interesting choice on his part. The city itself lay 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It was the ancient capital of what was the ancient kingdom of Syria. Today, the ruins of Antioch sit within the uh, proper uh, borders of what we know today is Turkey. And its population was somewhere between 500 and 800,000 people, making it the third largest city in the Roman Empire, a third only to Rome, which was number one, and then Alexandria, and then came uh, Antioch. It was famous for its wealth. It was famous for its vice, but it was luxurious vice that they engaged in. This was a very, very wealthy city, and it was known for its magnificent buildings. The main street of the city, now we're talking 2,000 years ago, the main street of the city ran four miles in length, and when they went to pave it, do you know what they paved it with? Marble. They paved the entire four-mile length of that street with marble. Not one of my countertops in my bathrooms, the two bathrooms in our house, has had the blessing of being in marble. Uh, they paved the streets with marble. Uh, both sides of the street were uh, uh, adorned by marble colonnades. It was the only city at the time in the ancient world that had its streets lit at night, and it earned the title of Antioch the Golden, Queen of the East. Well, you get all of that wealth and all of that concentration of luxury and these kind of things, all of that, uh, you know, was great for the city and all, but morally and spiritually, it was a horrible place. 
It, the, it, it alone, in the ancient world, rivaled Corinth for, as, as a center for wickedness within the Roman Empire. It was notorious for it. The ancient uh, satirist uh, Juvenal, he wrote, the Orontes pouring pollution into the Tiber. And the Orontes River was the river of Antioch. The Tiber wasn't is the great river of Rome. And in writing this, Juvenal was lamenting the moral degeneration of Rome and of the entire Roman Empire, which he correctly recognized was the result of the filthiness and the wickedness that was flowing into it from Antioch itself. Here is such a concentration of wickedness and immorality that it had the ability to even uh, move out in a less concentrated form and corrupt the entire Roman Empire. Imagine what the concentration of wickedness must have been in the city itself. It was filled with idolatry, filled with superstition, cultic prostitution, religious prostitution, every vice, every wickedness imaginary. And yet, God not only established a church in Antioch, but he then proceeds to make that church into the great missionary church of the early church. And it is this church that is ultimately going to send the great apostle Paul out on all of his missionary journeys. It becomes the sponsoring church for the apostle Paul. And the Holy Spirit in that city of Antioch, he gave a, a life to the message of forgiveness and salvation that was delivered there through Christians that were scattered there and were told that a great multitude was saved. There's an application. There's so many applications you could bring out. I want to just limit it to one here. But I think that all of this provides us with something that we really need to hear today as Christians. We do not have to fear wickedness as Christians. We don't have to do that, and we shouldn't do that. We do not have to fear wickedness. We should separate ourselves from it, but we are not to fear it. For the simple reason that wickedness is always sowing the seeds for its own destruction. All wickedness ever does is it simply prepares the ground of people's hearts for one day hearing the seed of the gospel. Because wickedness cannot continue to expand indefinitely without being broken because it ultimately becomes a threat to the very existence of mankind. It begins to become a threat to people's emotional health, their mental health, their physical health. Wickedness and sin always breaks a human being down. It is always to go against what we've been created to do. And so it breaks people down, but it also breaks nations down. And if it's left to itself, it would even bring about the very extinction of mankind. That's the danger of it. Now, that's why the old saying, and it's a very good one to understand this about wickedness, that the sin is not bad because it's forbidden. 
I would venture to say that uh, eight out of ten people within our culture that look at the commandments of God who are not Christians and they see the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, that they view those as the thou shalt nots are in place and these things that God forbids, they're only bad because they're forbidden. And that is such a shallow understanding of life, such a shallow uh, observer of life. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It is forbidden because it's bad. And the world seems to be determined to be forced to learn this lesson over and over and over again. And ultimately, there must always be a rebound out of wickedness and back toward godliness, back toward goodness and light on the part of mankind, if not for no other reason than our very survival. All of this is a cycle of history. The problem is, is that we don't teach history anymore. This is the cycle of, of human history. Wickedness growing and growing and growing until it reaches a tipping point where people realize we're not going to be able to survive if this continues. And then things turn back around out of necessity. It's certainly not only the cycle of human history, but it's the cycle of sometimes uh, the history of God's people, certainly the cycle of the book of Judges, which speaks about the Jews and the Old Testament, the moral environment of the Jewish people at the time of the Judges, described in this way, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and it made a nation that nobody wanted to live in. We live in a nation where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, not realizing that it will not have any different end than it did with ancient Israel. You can only do that for so long before you destroy everything that is good and virtuous. And so, in the book of Judges, in that moral environment, the cycle was the same, and it's always the same. Here they would have God's commandments and then begin to rebel against God's definitions of right and wrong. After all, what does God know? It's keeping me from all of these pleasures. It's keeping me from all of these sins. Surely they can't be given to us with the intent of protecting us from something that will destroy us. And so they began a rebellion against God's word, always that disobedience to God's word always leads to, to uh, bondage. It always leads to bondage. It always leads to bondage. And it is no different in the year 2016. Sin always leads to bondage. And then they would realize how far down they've come. They couldn't, they'd look at each other. They couldn't even re- recognize what they, how in the world did we become this? And then ultimately, as they began to deal with the full consequences of their sin, which were th- at this point inescapable, they would repent. They would turn back to God. God would send a deliverer and They would then begin the cycle all over again, obeying God for a period of time, and then obedience to God's word always brings a level of prosperity on every level. They would prosper as a result, and then they would think to themselves, boy, these commandments sure are restrictive, and they would head in and begin the entire cycle all over again. We just have to, in the current environment of of our nation, in the current environment, moral environment of the world, we just have to stay faithful to God in the midst of all of this. 
and where we are in the cycle. And as we do so, the victims of the new immorality or the new morality, they will continue to increase. But the victims of the new morality will simply, in going into all of that and into the immorality of it on every kind of level, all it does is ultimately prepare them for the solution then to all of the guilt that they accrue there, all of the bondage that they find themselves in as a result. It prepares them then for God's offer of forgiveness and salvation. That's all that wickedness ever does on the long term. It does what it does on the short term. But all it ever does is ripen a heart and prepare a heart for good news concerning forgiveness, for where my wickedness has led me, and then salvation from the human being that I've become into a kingdom that is very different from the one that I have given myself uh, to. It always, wickedness does, always has a tipping point. God always wins, and it's important to know that. And it always comes back around to God because it must in order to survive. And so like the Christians in Antioch, let's keep sharing the gospel with people and then trusting that God will make much of it in their lives. Now, next I want you to notice uh, two words that constitute the first two words of verse 20. I want you to look at them with your own eyes. But some Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene was a port city in what we know as uh, Libya today, they then come after this first group did, and they come into Antioch and they preach Jesus to the Hellenists. And the Hellenists were people who lived under Greek or Hellenistic culture. In other words, they began now to preach to the Gentiles. And realize, and very important to realize, that in doing this right there in verse 20, they did something that had never before done in human history. So here we are, we read the passage, it looks like, okay, 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 okay. And then sometimes we need to just stop and look at it and go, no, what's happening right here has never happened before in the history of the church, never happened before in all of human history. This is the first time the gospel was deliberately preached to Gentiles in church history. Philip had preached in Samaria, but the Samaritans were half-Jews and half-Gentiles. Paul, Peter rather, he preached to the household of Cornelius, but it was Cornelius who took the initiative. Here, a small group of Jewish Christians, they woke up one morning, some kind of a eureka moment that happened inside of them spiritually, and they decided, let's share the gospel with these dreaded Gentiles, and let's see what happens. And the rest is history, as they say. And that history reaches right into this room here this morning. It isn't everyone who did it. It wasn't a majority, but it was a minority. It was a group known as but some who did it. Not but a lot or but most, but but some. And how much we need that group today in the body of Christ 
And we need that group operating in, in the fullness of their vision and in the fullness of their godly zeal. I like another translation that speaks of it instead of but some, and they say, and certain men, certain men. These men are not everybody. They're not even the majority. They're not even a large minority. These men and women are typically a small minority in the body of Christ and in any local church. Most advancements in Christianity and in the Great Commission throughout history, they haven't occurred because of the move of some kind of a unified majority, where some large group of Christians, a large majority of Christians, sits down and they come up with a program and they come up with a plan, and then that plan or that program then changes the whole world. But the advancement of the kingdom of God has occurred on the basis of certain disciples, Christians who either alone or in small groups took a step of faith that the majority of Christians were not willing to take and are not willing to take, and then God blessed it. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. In the Jonathan and his armor bearer in the historical books at the time of Saul, here he is in this battle of the Jews against the Philistines, and there's this standoff in the battle. And Jonathan takes his armor bearer, and he's convinced that he and the two of them, if God is with them, can take on the whole Philistine army and defeat them. And he uh, then uh, headed out in a, a frontal assault of two men against an entire army, and and uh, ultimately brought a victory to the army of Israel, and he headed out in that great but some uh, event of the Old Testament by saying, come, let us go over to the garrison of these Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And he got it, and he understood it, and nobody else at the time had that spirit. I think about David and his slaying of Goliath in the Old uh, Testament. Here the entire army of Israel is on one side of the valley, the army of the Philistines on the other side of the valley, the Philistines intent upon the destruction, the elimination, the eradication of the Jews. And this is nothing new under the sun that's happening here today. And here is this kind of a standoff that has occurred. And King Saul and the entire army of Israel is standing on one side of the valley. They're content to uh, live in a standoff with the enemy. Nobody wins, but nobody loses. And they're content with that condition. David shows up on the scene, and he sees the entire situation the same way uh, that everybody else is seeing. And as he's looking at it, Goliath comes out and begins to not only blaspheme the armies of the children of Israel, but he begins to blaspheme their God. And David, as he listens to all of this, as everybody else is willing to just live with this, they're just willing to put up with the insults, to put up with the blasphemy, all of it's an affront to David's spirit, and he goes forth and he slays the giant, and it results in a great defeat of Israel's enemies. In missions, the same thing is true. William Carey, uh, the famous missionary to India, 
and uh, properly understood and, and known as the father of modern missions. He had to overcome immense resistance to ministry or missionary effort, not from the unsaved world, but from among the overwhelming majority of Christians in his day in order to accomplish what he did. He was but certain men. He was but some. As a result of his Christian faith, William Wilberforce stood up to the British Parliament at a key moment in uh, history to passionately advocate for the abolition of slavery. And he did it against tremendous social opposition, tremendous public opposition, and even considerable opposition among Christians. And that campaign ultimately led to the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833, which abolished slavery not only in England, but in virtually the entirety of the British Empire. But some, but some. I think about George Mueller, who in his day, without the backing of a denomination, not one denomination, or the backing of a single mission organization, established orphanages in England for 10,024 children. He established 117 schools without anybody else's help in terms of initially beginning the vision. Others came alongside after it had begun. 117 schools established which offered Christian education in his lifetime to over 120,000 children, most of them orphans, but some. And so it is today, I think, with every Bible club that gets established on the high school campuses within our community, that happens not because a majority has risen up in order to make it accomplished, but someone is a certain man, a certain woman, but some. They're different from the majority. They're different from the rest. Virtually all ministry that begins, the expansion of ministry within a local church, it occurs not on the basis of committees or the movement of the majority. It occurs because individuals within that church, someone has a but some spirit and looks and says, this is a need and let's move forward and let's see what God uh, wants to do. There's always a but some behind it. And it is the pioneer mentality as opposed to the settler mentality in people. And the body of Christ, just like mankind, is made up of both kinds of people. The majority of people are settlers. They're cautious, and they like to be a little more predictable. People don't like change. Christians really don't like change. And so these people that are but some that are in this category, they're visionaries, they like change, they like to see things happen, they're risk takers, and they're a minority within the body. Both of them are needed, uh, but the settler's more conservative, more predictable. And those with a pioneer mentality, a visionary mentality in the body of Christ or in a local church, they tend to be messier. These folks created a bit of a mess here. But you get someone who's a visionary, someone who is like this but some. They look at something. They see some promise of God 
in a way that nobody else is willing to look at it. What's happening here is no crazy thing that some mystic in a desert has come up with. They just sat down one day and realized that the Great Commission was given in order to make disciples of all nations, not just the Jews. And they decided on some particular day, let's put that promise of God to the test by actually taking this gospel to the Gentiles and seeing what God does. But visionaries are complicated. They're like artists sometimes in the world. you got to have them, but they can be complicated people. And so visionaries, they like to, they don't believe in boundaries so often. And they see a wall that even Christian people have put in front of them that shouldn't be there on the basis of the Word of God. They see a need, and they will run through that wall. And you run through that wall, you're going to make a mess. And so often the settlers will then have a problem with the visionary because now they've got to clean up all of the sheetrock and the studs and they've got to clean up all of the dust. And sometimes all the settler sees is the mess that the, that the but some has made and they don't even realize, wait a second, he or she has busted a hole in a wall and is allowing us to see Christianity, the harvest field, the work of God, God himself in a way that we never have before. I'm telling you, these people are needed in the body of Christ. They're important in the body of Christ. Most advancement occurs under the influence of these people. They have the vision and the faith to push through what the majority of Christians can't come to think of or what they can ever be done or what they come to accept as barriers or as unchangeable when they are not. And I say all of that to say this, for those of you who are in this but some ilk, keep being who you are in the body of Christ. Keep being that. Don't cease to take your steps of faith. Don't cease to act upon the vision that God gives you out of his word. Vision is valuable stuff, very valuable stuff. It's priceless when it comes from God. Some of you know this, but all of you ought to know. When somebody comes to me with vision and they say, I've got a vision for this, or have we ever thought about this, or have we ever prayed about this, I accept that vision, and I will make it a matter of prayer for myself and then involve the pastoral leadership of the church in it as well. I want to hear what is God doing, what is on somebody's heart. Let's find out what uh, God is going to speak to us related to this. And so if you're this kind of a person, don't lose your zeal, don't lose your passion, don't grow tired of not only having to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil in your own calling, but also having to overcome the skepticism and the indifference of the majority within Christianity. If this is who you are, you be that. And we need you to be that for the sake of only God knows who, to couple your vision with faith and obey what God is calling you to do. Being a member of this but some club in the body of Christ, I tell you, it must be often very, very thankless 
and very, very frustrating. But God notices it, and He honors it. And I say from this sermon today, praise the Lord for the but some in the body of Christ and in a local church. And be that when God calls you to be that. And the church is no different today than it was in the first century. Sometimes we, the majority, we have to be dragged kicking and screaming into the next thing God is doing by some collection of but some. Do it for us. Third, I want you to notice Barnabas and the name Barnabas in our passage. Here he reappears within the narrative of the book of Acts. We know from earlier in the book of Acts, his name means son of consolation. It means encourager. And whoever named him, mom or dad or whoever named him, they gave him a right name because he grew into that name. He is the encourager in the early body of Christ. This man was a son of consolation. He was an encourager by gifting. He was an encourager by nature. We know he was a generous man. Earlier in the book of Acts, there was the selling of a piece of land in order to give the proceeds to the apostles to then help those who were poor within uh, Jerusalem as Christians because of the hardship they were facing because becoming Christians. In chapter 9, we saw him again when no one would trust that Saul of Tarsus was actually a new Christian. Everybody was skeptical. He's a mole. He's a spy. Barnabas gave him the benefit of the doubt, got to know him, discovered that, no, this man's really been born again, and then built a bridge between Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, and the rest of the, the apostles. He just, he, he had that, he, he lacked this kind of natural skepticism or cynicism that marks so many. We're told in verse 24 further that he was a good man, that he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And here he is coming on the scene in Antioch because he's been sent by the apostles to Jerusalem to investigate the word that they've received, that we've got thousands of Gentiles who are now saved in Antioch. And Antioch, scummy old Antioch, yes, in Antioch. Not a handful, no, multitudes are getting saved over there. And to their credit, this is not something uh, cynical on their part. They're not suspicious. They're not jealous. Their responsibility is the oversight of the body of Christ. And so they send Barnabas to investigate it, to find out what's going on there. It was wisdom on their part. It was good leadership on their part. And you notice in verse 23, when Barnabas arrives, he loves what he saw, and he recognizes it immediately to be God's work. Now, remember this. We just look at it and say, well, of course anybody would recognize. And this a Gentile in a room filled with Gentiles. I don't know how many Jewish believers we have here today, but most of us are Gentile believers. This is not jaw-dropping or mind-boggling to us, but it is for Barnabas. And you have to remember that he's walking into a scene that would, again, be mind-boggling for a Jew. He's walking into a city and into a church meeting where there are thousands of Gentiles who are saved and following Jesus. This has never happened before in the history of the church up to that time. And his reaction is, it made him glad. Now, there's some people 
that you invite them into that environment, they'd be determined to criticize it in some way, find something wrong with it, and, uh, and undermine anything that's new, even if it's of God, but not Barnabas. And the effect of this, this uh, encouragement that he lavished upon those early Gentile Christians was that a great many even more were added to the Lord, we're told in the latter part of verse 24. It helped that Barnabas came from Cyprus. That's where he came from, large Jewish population in Cyprus in those days. But he grew up as a Jew, but he grew up around Gentiles. He didn't dislike Gentiles. He didn't distrust Gentiles. He realized Jews and Gentiles were two entirely different things, but he had a heart for Gentiles. And so here, out of anyone you could have probably sent from Jerusalem that would have been the perfect match for being an encouragement and open to the Spirit in terms of what's happening, you couldn't have sent anyone better uh, than, uh, than Barnabas going there. I mean, he goes there open-minded, not looking for a fault at all. Let me pull one application out of this before we leave it, and that is, if you are an encourager in the body of Christ, uh, I want to meet you. Okay, all right. But if you are like Barnabas, a son of consolation, and God has made you that by nature and by His Holy Spirit, use your gift like crazy. Use your gift of encouragement like crazy in the body of Christ. You must understand, you must understand about your gift and calling that you are the rare one. You are not the majority. And your gift is needed. Your encouragement is needed in people's lives. That dynamic that an encourager brings to a church is very, very uh, important and very needed. Not everyone, and you need to realize this, not everyone is like you. You are not a dime a dozen. And so when so many tend to be overcautious in the body of Christ, and Christians are very much this, very suspicious of anything new, even when it's the Holy, uh, Holy Spirit, and, and uh, here in this case, suspicious of these Gentile believers. There are some people that could have come to Antioch. You'd find them in the corner of the fellowship hall with their arms folded and will say, well, we'll see if this sticks. That's not what those new Christians needed. That's not what that church needed. They needed Barnabas, and God sent Barnabas to them. They needed encouragements. New Christians don't need this over here. They need encouragement, and that's an important gift and an important overflow of your life. It's said that concerning D.L. Moody, famous, famous evangelist, one of the most famous in American history, that immediately upon a person coming to faith, he would make sure that he gave them something to do. I mean, in the evening service, he would have them hand out the hymnals or hand out the Bibles to whoever was coming. Something. He would get them to do something to encourage their faith, to encourage them to move now into Christian service. He had a gift of encouragement as well as evangelist. I remember, and, and it's that spirit of Barnabas. I remember an old friend uh, named Frank Ippolito. He's old. I'm not. But he cal- pastors the Calvary Chapel in, uh, in, in Divineland, New Jersey, and he and I were together at the Calvary Chapel in Napa. And Frank Ippolito is a modern-day Barnabas. 
He launched more people in Calvary Chapel of Napa into service than all of the rest of us together. And he would just come up and he would just recognize kind of, hey, you're new and here, but, you know, your next step might be this. And, yeah, you're ushering, but have you thought about maybe a home fellowship? And, and these kind of things is always a pat on the back, always very approachable, always encouraging people. And he's the, one of the reasons I am in Modesto and where I am in, in the, as a pastor today. And he came up to me one time, and I was a deacon, and I was content to uh, usher people in and out and hand out Bibles and do all of those different kinds of things and all. And I was sitting uh, during one of the were three services in the Sunday morning. I attended all three of them, and I was praying the last two on things. And, Lord, I think you're telling me to, you know, teach a home fellowship and to take that step and all. Frank came up to me, no, 10 seconds after the service ends. And he said, I think you're supposed to start a home fellowship. And to lead it. And so I recognize it as confirmation and began that. But there are people that are like that. And it's important not to get so conservative, not so inside of ourselves, so suspicious, so wary about everything. These people keep a lot of people moving forward. Hi, Frank, I love you. You know, <laughs> so, um, and that gift of in- encouragement. And so you, Barnabas, as you go for it, New Christians need encouragement. Everybody needs encouragement. Barnabas knew it, and he laid it on them. I want you to notice, too, that we've got the reemergence of Saul, ultimately, to Noah as Paul here within the passage. When Barnabas comes to Antioch, he sees what's going on here. He realizes, this is more than I can handle. I am one leader from Jerusalem. We've got thousands of these multitudes and thousands of these new Gentile Christians here. I need some help. They're all brand new Christians. And I don't think that uh, Barnabas went through some long kind of Rolodex in his mind or anything like that. He looks at the scene, and I'm convinced in his mind, he thought, there is one man that has been created for what I am in the middle of right now, and that is Saul of Tarsus, because he knew he needed to have a man who was deep in the Scriptures, but also familiar with Gentile culture and loving the Gentiles, knowing that Gentiles should be saved. This was a revelation that Paul had 10 years earlier in his life. And so he makes a beeline to Tarsus now in order to find Saul there, a journey of about 125 uh, miles. Luke intimates there in verse 26, and when he had found him, apparently he was busy doing this and that, and to hunt him down wasn't that easy, but ultimately he finds him. And now Paul, after 10 years after his conversion, he returned to Antioch with Barnabas in order to teach these new disciples. And now from chapter 13 on in the book of Acts, Paul and his missionary journeys will now become the focus of the rest of uh, the book. Paul was not out of sight and out of mind. And wherever you are serving the Lord, it may seem obscure to you what patience a man like this of such gifting and talent, waiting 10 years 
for it to not only to be the right man in the right place, but also at the right time, and he waits. God hadn't lost sight of him and comes on the scene and brings him then to Antioch, and so begins the most prominent and fruitful part of Paul's uh, ministry. Stay faithful in your obscure place of service. Who knows what God has planned for you next? I want you to notice as well that when Paul comes, notice the emphasis of Upon teaching there in verse uh, 26. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and they taught a great many Christians and the importance of teaching. So for a full year, here's Paul and Barnabas, and they taught 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 these new Christians the Bible and about their Christian faith. Taught them over and over again. And it wasn't Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Is kind of traditional within Christianity. This is Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and then in some sections of Paul's missionary journeys, from noon to two o'clock, he would have a Bible study in the middle of the day as well. They are laying out the Word of God massively and dramatically to these new Christians, and they do so over the course of a year. And why would they do it? Because Christian growth and maturity cannot occur without going deep in our knowledge of the Word of God, the Bible, because it provides us with our understanding of God like nothing else does, and it provides us with our understanding of His ways. We could spend an entire Sunday morning on this subject alone, but I want to leave it sufficient to note that Barnabas knew that these Christians, when he looks at them, the single greatest need within their life after salvation was they needed biblical instruction in order to grow into maturity. I like the old saying, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian to reach the whole world. And the body of Christ in the United States of America someday is going to have to start taking that seriously. It takes a whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and knowing that, to make a whole Christian. The illiteracy among Christians in terms of the Bible as a whole concerning the Old Testament, the overwhelming majority of Christians in the United States know nothing about the Old Testament and don't see anything wrong with it. But you cannot, as a Christian, fully appreciate Jesus himself hanging on the cross of Calvary and what it means to the heart of God, what it means to him, what it ought to mean to us, independent of understanding the sacrifices of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, that give revelation in light and produce awe concerning what a man, the Son of Man, and God the Son would be willing to come into the world and to do to provide for us. We are starving to death and ignorant, and we don't know we're starving to death and we're ignorant. Three cheers for the Word of God and the importance of it. Our devotional life is important. Some people are saying, don't encourage him. He's already out of time. (laughs) Our devotional lives are important. It's It's the most important, but it's not the all in all. 
There should be some part of our lives as Christians where we are engaged in this book on a study level to learn the depths of what this book says. And they understood it and, and brought this into that early church. I want you to notice as well that it was in Antioch that Christians were first called Christians, there in verse 26. We just kind of take the term for granted, Christian, 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 and one would assume, uh, naturally assume, that all right, the term Christian's got to be found from one end of the New Testament to the other. But the interesting thing about it is the word Christian is only used three times in the entire New Testament. Most often Christians are referred to as believers or disciples, other names. They're not called Christians, but they're referred to here. This is where the name got attached to them. Antioch was known. They, they prized uh, satire within the city, and they loved to coin phrases and attach them to different kinds of people. And when they saw the Christians within this city, they realized there's nothing else like them. There's nothing like, they're nothing like the people who worship all of these other idols. They're nothing like the Jews. They're nothing like, nothing like, nothing like. These people need and deserve their own term to be coined for them, and thus they coined the term Christian and applied uh, it to them. And the word Christian, it comes from the term Christianos, consists of the Greek word Christ or Messiah, Christos, with a Latin ending, uh, eanus, which means belonging to, and so it means one who belongs to or is identified with Christ. And I want you to notice that Christians did not assume the name themselves. They didn't say, let's get something catchy going on around here, you know, that we'll get some traction and maybe people will come to the church. This was something that other people that didn't know the Lord came up with and then attached uh, to them. Listen, and probably they devised this term with an element of ridicule or scorn. It wasn't complimentary, the term, uh, at all. See if you can hear the disdain in the other verses of, of the New Testament where it's used. And Agrippa, Acts 26, Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter 4, 16, if anyone, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, then let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. The recognition of how the term was a derogatory term, and yet it spoke of the fact that when these people looked at this new group of people called Christians, they said, we can't identify them as being anything else that's all around us. Their life is unique. Their life is different. And so we will give him, them this name. And I don't think it's any accident that Christians became known as Christians and established a very different kind of life, that in the record of the Holy Spirit concerning all of this, that they became known as Christians, that that part of the account follows the fact that they had been taught for a year from the Word of God, the impact of the Word of God upon their lives, so dramatic. And finally, and we close with this, and I thank you for being patient with me this morning and going over a little bit. We notice their love. 
And here comes a, uh, the pr- a prophet from Jerusalem, comes into the city of Antioch, preaches to, uh, prophesies to the group that a great famine is going to come upon the land. They're Christians in Antioch. This is, a, this is like Christians in Santa Barbara. They're affluent. They've got money. They're not worried. Uh, okay, so a famine comes in. It's going to be an inconvenience. The prices of food are going to go up, but we've got the money to do it. And so they hear about the famine. They realize, hey, as wealthy people, as a wealthy city, we're going to withstand this fine. Their mind goes to the Christians who are in Jerusalem, who are poor in that environment because of their faith within Christ, and they said, we've got to do something for them. And they opened up their wallets and they opened up their hearts toward them. And immediately one of the marks of them was a concern for the whole body of Christ. Can you imagine being an apostle in Jerusalem, being a Judaizer or being of the circumcision, and Paul and Barnabas show up from Antioch with an offering from the Gentile church to the Jews? I mean, that would make them realize this is legit. Trust me, by the time Christianity touches a person's wallet, it's gone deep in a person's life. And in a year, there's the old joke about how everybody removes their wallet before they get baptized, when they ought to let it get baptized too. I'm not, all right, so it just comes to mind as I'm preaching on it. My point is, is by the time people start to separate some money, we're talking about some pretty serious people and a concern for the rest of the body of Christ, and they had it. And so this morning, able to look here a little bit, lay a foundation for the rest of the study of of the book of Acts. But I trust we've gleaned a handful of things that speak about maybe something important needing to be expressed in your life and don't let it die out. Or looking at other parts of the body of Christ who are these but some, or they are the visionaries, and they can be a headache at times, but to realize how desperately we need them in this church and in the body of Christ as a whole. Good things to be sown into our spirit today. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for this foundation that you have laid for the rest of the book of Acts, but we see that you have laid a foundation for a church here and a foundation that fits a Christian life so well. And I pray, Lord, as I just commit now this message and all that's been brought out and what I feel you have wanted me to do so, that you would keep it alive in individual hearts, that it would speak, Lord, to individual Christians here in this room and to keep hope alive, to keep gifting alive, to keep God-given personality alive within this church and within the body of Christ, even when so often it can be problematic or looked down upon or as the body of Christ becomes more conservative or more cynical, Lord, keep these people that help us not to become that alive and gifted and excited, Lord, in how you express yourself through them and then into our lives as well. Thank you for your word, always thank you for your word, Lord, and the privilege of being able to study it this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.